Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for March 9th, 2020, episode 21. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we are here to open hearts and minds to new ideas. We're going to comb through the week of news and other supplemental materials so that you don't have to. What we're going to do is have discussions about these ideas. We're going to make sure that you and ourselves remain adequately informed. Yeah, so we take in all of the takes and then take them and give you our watered down takes. We're the take <laughs> aggregators, yeah. Take regators. <laughs> I'm going to have to workshop that one. But uh, we realize that we are not perfect. We are not infallible. We don't know everything. Because, you know, we're, we could have named the website or the podcast Maximally Informed, Wholly Informed. But no, that's not who we are. We like to think that on the stuff we talk about, we're adequately informed. You know, enough to kind of have an air of reasonable degree of certainty that we're able to talk about this stuff so anyway oh and we're not on the ivory tower gotta say that oh, oh. i thought we were gonna be on the ivory tower this oh, week I was, geez. And there was some <sighs> other phrase that i wanted to incorporate into it but i did not write it down so next week we're gonna have another phrase in my opening bit but anyway evan yes joe what do you want to talk about this week so after last week, I've been thinking a lot about adaptation, what it means for a work to go through different mediums and different manifestations, different iterations. And so I think a really great way to talk about this is from a topic suggestion from our listener, Jack D., who recommended to me the book, Call Me By Your Name. I'd seen the film, but I'd never read the book. And he actually went so far as to send me a loaner copy in the mail so that I could read it. And I did. So I just want to kind of discuss my thoughts reading the book after having seen the movie. And I think this is a case where there is something that's lost in the adaptation because I enjoy the film. I've seen it several times, but I don't think I ever quite got why it resonated with people so strongly. After the reading, after reading the book, I think I had a lot better idea of what people are responding to within that narrative. And I think the reason why is because so much of the desire and emotion that we are to experience vicariously through Elio, who in the film is played by Timothy Chalamet, is very internal. It's not necessarily revealed by his actions, it's revealed by his thoughts. And since the book is told from his perspective, we get a constant stream of consciousness of his thoughts. And there are symbols that are retained in the movie that aren't super well explained. The chief among them is what is the significance of the title, Call Me By Your Name? The characters, Elio and Oliver, who is his lover, played by Army Hammer in the film, uh, their little ritual is to 
use their own names. So Elio calls Oliver Elio, and Oliver calls Elio Oliver. And in the movie, I you know I saw this movie I think three or four times, and I just was absolutely scratching my head. Why does that matter? Why do they do that? And in the book, they go through a lot more detail to talk about how it's a a way to express that they are, are merged into one on an almost cosmic level. There's no difference between Elio and Oliver, so they might as well swap the names. Elio is Oliver. Oliver is Elio. But I did not get that at all from the movie. And granted, I might not be the most perceptive viewer. There, you know, there are probably ways that director Luca Guadagnino and writer James Ivory tried to convey that within the film. But I think, unfortunately, the book is almost too internal to make a smooth transition to the screen. And remember, I, I like this movie. I, I think it's beautifully shot, some good acting, but the book to me was much stronger and I enjoyed the book a lot more for that reason. And again, I think it's tough when you have to adapt something that is so internal, but we've seen it done, I think, a little bit better and the example that I want to bring up here is Gone Girl, which is a fantastic book. It's actually one of my favorite novels that I've ever read uh, by Gillian Flynn. And then the movie is really awesome as well. I think I still prefer the book a little bit, but they're both fantastic. And the way that Gone Girl is able to circumvent some of the problems of the internalized versus externalized emotional arcs is because it uses the device of narration and it's narrated through Amy's diary, Amy played by Rosamund Pike in Gone Girl. And although it is ultimately a bit of an unreliable narrator scenario, we are still able to have that direct line to the character that we don't have in something like Call Me By Your Name. So... I think that it is a tough situation for creators to be in when they try to adapt a book like Call Me By Your Name, and so I give a lot of leeway, but nonetheless, I think that for a movie that won Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars, I think James Ivory, the writer, missed a lot. I mean, that does get... I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but it's just like a lot of mediums or great works. What makes them work is the medium or they're curtailed to the specific medium that they are presented in. And that this has always been one of the things with books to movies is that books have this ability to be much denser, much uh, have a lot more detail, be explore areas which film have a tougher time, especially with, you know, thoughts, unless you're going to start doing the whole, you know, uh, the character narrates their thoughts thing. It's hard to do thoughts in audio visual, but through a novelization, you can easily do it. Of so. course. And I'm not saying that call me by your name would have benefited from a voiceover narration 
from Elio, but I think that as I tried to demonstrate by contrasting with Gone Girl, there are still choices that can be made to emphasize different elements more. And even independently from Gone Girl, I think it's interesting that, uh, I guess in terms of what the filmmakers decided to carry over, because the plot is very similar and the, the symbolism and the beats are very similar, but I, it kind of seems to me, and again, you know, it could just be that I'm a dummy, but it seems to me that just putting the same symbols and important beats into the movie without that same explanation isn't isn't good enough. You you have oh, yeah. to alter them to the medium or find some other way to explain it that's uh, more clear. I guess another example I'll talk about um, Brokeback Mountain. So I've the the I don't even want to call it a book because it's really a novella um, that Brokeback Mountain is based on, and it's very bare bones. It's it kind of reads almost like a Cliff Notes version of the movie or a plot summary of the movie. But when Ang Lee adapted it into a film, he added things that weren't in the original book that I think clarified some character dynamics. One of my favorites is when it's very early on when Jack, who is played by Jake Gyllenhaal and Ennis, who's played by Heath Ledger are at the camp campsite because they're cowboys they're ranchers um they decide they have to they're stuck eating beans because that's all that was packed for them and ennis uh says that he's fine eating beans and jack is upset and he wants to go and try to find different food this exchange isn't in the book at all but it's so important to the movie because it establishes that Ennis is going to be the one who is okay with the status quo. He's not going to try to make waves, whereas Jack is going to be the one who is going to more actively fight to create the kind of world that he wants to live in, which ends up having really big consequences later on down the road. So, again, even without a direct voiceover, there are still ways that filmmakers can clarify elements from the original text and i just don't think that the movie version of call me by your name does enough to that end all right well having not seen the movie or read the book i'll take your word for it all righty so joe what do you want to talk about well evan this is going to be <laughs> this is going to be a little bit more off the top of my head because that was all just... off the top of my head Oh, wow. You got a big, uh, you got a lot of space up there. Um, <laughs> so, as I'm sure you all know, daylight savings happened this week. I don't know if we're in the savings part or if we're in the spending part. We sprung ahead. So now days are different. I don't, it, I, I daylight savings is just so stupid. And, uh, I have tried, I, I, I have originally thought of this as a possible video topic, but here we go. This is me talking about it. It seems like uh, <clears throat> the only way daylight savings makes any sense is that if you have a bunch of people who will stubbornly start their day 
at the same time, no matter what. So you're just like, well, we're going to have that time at a different time of day now. So it, you, you have the same amount of sunlight and maybe conceivably at some point in the past when energy was scarce enough that you could maybe move people's days around so that when they started at six in the morning, because they were always going to start at six in the morning, that maybe six in the morning was a little bit later in the day so that there was sunlight at six in the morning. Maybe that works, but it's just so stupid. Time is time. People are going to work when they need to work. People are going to start their days when they start their days. And I even think time zones are kind of silly. Why don't we just have unified time where if it's six o'clock, it's six o'clock on the whole damn world. You roll into town and on, you know, right next to the population of a town, it says when noon is like, ah, in this town, noon is at 536. And you're like, (laughs) oh, wow, 536. That's an odd time to have noon. But that's when it would be. So I just I time just keeps going and maybe we could unify it even more by everybody being on the same time throughout the world. No messing with time zones. No. I mean, there would still be jet lag because you would have to adjust to days, but no time zones, no daylight savings. And it's even greater because. Some places observe daylight savings and some don't and countries change their daylight savings at different times. So I think in Britain, you know, I haven't looked this up, but they either change their daylight savings before we do or after we do. What's the what's the whole point if we're all going to do it? Just weird times, whatever the hell we feel like it. It's just, it, it's no, it's not useful. And I'm tired because <laughs> I lost an hour last night. So that is my, <laughs> my rant on daylight savings. Yeah. I mean, I agree. It's pretty dumb. Daylight savings time made sense when we were in agrarian society where we actually needed daylight to tend to fields and animals and most, you know, over 90% of the workforce were farmers. And so maybe at that one small cross-section of history, daylight savings time made sense. However, since then, yeah, our, our schedules have become so much less dependent upon the, the solar positioning. People work... Uh, 24, you know, the the workflow of a lot of industries doesn't stop 24 hour work cycles. And so to just kind of change the, um, to to just kind of change up the time twice a year doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I know that Andrew Yang today tweeted something about how, Injuries and accidents go up after daylight savings time when you lose an hour because people are more tired. It goes back to what Joe was talking about uh, either last episode or a couple episodes about sleep, where if you don't get the sleep that you need and that you're used to, you don't cognitively function as well. And we do that on purpose 
every year. And I mean, I was late to church today because I just couldn't get my ass out of bed. And that's a relatively low stakes consequence. It's not relatively, that's an objectively low stakes consequence of daylight savings time. But what if I was someone who had to operate heavy machinery on a Sunday morning? Would that really be a good idea to take away an hour of my sleep? Because when you get on a, a rhythm and a sleep schedule, it's not as simple as just going to bed an hour earlier to accommodate for it. Your body needs time to adjust to when you got to get tired under the new schedule. Um, so yeah, daylight savings time really doesn't make a lot of sense. As far as time zones go, um, I think those maybe make a little bit more sense. Maybe if, if countries were all on the same time, like I don't see why... Um, you know, Joe and I are separated by a few hundred miles and yet we live in different time zones. That probably doesn't need to be. I think, you know, with, with the entire circumference of the earth, maybe there should be different time zones when you cross an ocean or, you know, by the international dateline, maybe. Um, but other than that, yeah, I think. Oh that yeah. My second, my second position is way more radical than the, uh, the former so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no need yeah. no need to grapple with that that's just kind of uh <laughs> that that's that's uh some futurist talk right there right that um, that's the real utopia no time zones no time zones it's all just greenwich, greenwich mean time so <laughs> those people in england they really lucked out on the whole time thing you know they get <laughs> to keep their schedules everybody else is going to change but I that that, you know, if we can't get rid of daylight savings, I don't think we're going to be getting rid of time zones anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, um, but let's get rid of daylight savings. I'm on board. Yeah. Who are we saving this daylight for? Not Monsanto. me, apparently. <laughs> oh, man. Are we going to go into some conspiracy theories about Monsanto? It's not a conspiracy. They just own most of agriculture. <laughs> yeah, but they, you know, the conspiracies are normally like, they're trying to control us with the food, man. Chemicals. GMOs. And that's that's basically all you have to say to the people who believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that concludes our first segments. Yeah, we're we're really gonna get into it in a second. You you don't even you don't even know. So we're starting a new segment as a main segment, but it's a segment. It's it's the presidential race twenty twenty, and hopefully there's music playing under this. That's different. <laughs> but anyway, for our main topic, we have what the hell has been going on in in the the presidential primary this last week because a lot happened even since like the moment we stopped recording last week's episode because about four after four hours after we recorded last week's episode we got the news that former mayor pete Buttigieg dropped out of the race for the democratic nominee for president and then a day later, Amy Klobuchar dropped out and both then flew to Dallas, met up with Beto O'Rourke and endorsed uh, 
Joseph Robinette Biden for the Democratic nominee. And then Super Tuesday happened and Biden did big. And here we are. All right. Evan, what's your take? Yes. Um, just to fill in a little bit more of the gaps in Super Tuesday, after Super Tuesday, Michael Bloomberg had a really poor showing, got several delegates in several states, but really not enough to justify his continued existence in the race. And to his credit, he pulled the plug. More surprising or, well, depending on who you ask, it was surprising. Some would say disappointing. Some would say inevitable. Elizabeth Warren. Some would say not soon enough, which was a big point on Twitter. But anyway. Yeah. (laughs) She suspended her campaign as well after failing to crack into the top two of any state, including her home state of Massachusetts. And so what we have now is essentially a two-person race between Joe Biden, who has come to represent the establishment Democratic Party, and Bernie Sanders, the insurgent independent who is running to shift the party farther left. We also have Tulsi Gabbard still in the race. Basically, it's probably just a vanity thing for her at this point because she missed the deadline to run for her congressional seat again in Hawaii. She consciously made the decision to stay in the race. She knew what she was doing, but I guess she thought she would have gained more traction by now. So she can't go back to her old seat. That ship has sailed. And so, I mean, she's not really spending much money on ads or, or anything. She's kind of just on social media and that's about it. But She's still in the race, but she only has delegates from American Samoa, so not really a threat here. So she's so like, then it she's does almost become, like a local candidate, you know. With you know, whenever you go to vote for president, you know, in each state there are people who <laughs> get on the ballot even though they have no national presence whatsoever, and it's yeah. almost like a joke. Yeah, that's that's what she's going for. I bet she has a little bit of money. You know, raise a few dollars, can go hang out, do a few town halls, talk to some people, see the country, be all real nice and fun shit like that. So, I mean, maybe, but also I don't think she's doing that because I I follow her on social and it just doesn't she's not really having campaign events or if she is, she's not publicizing them for some weird reason. And yeah, it just kind of feels like this really inactive campaign but whenever she's asked about it she is very very angrily points out that she is still in the race so i don't know oh i was gonna even you know put out the proposition that maybe she had forgotten that she hadn't dropped out (laughs) like oh i thought i i dropped out months ago i just kind of went back to normal oh shit i i kept this thing going did i not file that paperwork did i I swore I had that press conference. I guess not. Well, (laughs) now I am. (laughs) But no. So. So, yeah, now it's it's Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And it's it's very much looking at Bernie can still come back and and make it. But the chances of that have gone down dramatically. 
What does your uh, 538 buddy say the chances are? He says it is a 2% chance he will get a majority of delegates. Okay. And it looks like since it went down to a... Well, let me see. Okay, a plurality. And then, then it's also only just a 5% chance of getting a plurality of delegates for Bernie. So, uh, say what you like about, you know, the modeling of this, but from it, it, it's tough. There has been, uh, I mean, it seems like in electoral politics and specifically these primary politics, there's a whole bunch of kind of folksy, never has a candidate done this, but that. So never has a candidate who didn't have the delegate lead after Super Tuesday go on to win the 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 nomination. Hmm. And this is the reason for this is because Super Tuesday you there is a about a third of all the delegates are up for grabs, a sizable chunk. And in the Democratic primary the delegates are awarded proportionally. So it's not when, you know, if this was winner takes all, there would be a much more fighting chance for Sanders um, than he does now. But since they are awarded proportionally, there would have to be in very short time, like by Tuesday, which is probably after or before some of you guys have listened to this and we're already talking in the very distant past, but there would have to be a massive swing towards Sanders and against Biden in the next states. And that is that just doesn't seem to be showing up. Yeah, the only way that he can really claw his way back is with decisive victories, blowouts, essentially, so that he can pad a delegate lead yeah because yeah if if it were winner take all as long as he could beat biden he would very quickly accumulate a large number of delegates but you know even if he beats biden by a narrow margin in some cases the delegate count might be even remember in new hampshire bernie won but mayor pete took home the exact same number of delegates because of the proportional reward yeah, so in a you know electoral college politics, having one more vote means you win the state, and this one having one more vote means you get some sort of ceremonial, oh, you won, placard, even if the delegates, which are actually what nominates the the candidate, they those may not be different, and yeah. You got so what are the 538 odds of a brokered convention now? Um, so 9%. How much? Nine. Okay, so they're they're thinking Biden's gonna pick up steam pretty quickly here. I mean he 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 has. He had a massive swing. Um one thing that I thought um was interesting is that so this all happened kind of because Biden had a very strong showing in South Carolina. 
he did way overperformed where he thought he was going to be. And it's interesting to me that, you know, in kind of the uh, 2019 version of the uh, Democratic primary, there are a lot of takes and stuff about how the first states that vote shouldn't be the first states because they are very white and homogenous and don't speak for the Democratic Party. And what ended up happening this cycle was the first couple states that went ended up having no like sort of media impact or greater impact on the race in general. It wasn't until South Carolina, the first state that had any sort of, uh, you know, any sort of African-American population to vote where things really started changing, you know, going in the direction or in any sort of different direction than whatever the status quo was, um, you know, after the uh, after the Iowa, New Hampshire contest. I mean, yeah, there was a bump for Bernie, but then after South Carolina, there was a massive bump for Biden. So why do you think he overperformed so much in South Carolina? Well, I did read an interesting Twitter thread um, that was, I mean, it was talking about black voters in the South and how for now, again, I'm this is something I saw on Twitter. I don't know how true it is. It's anecdotal and it doesn't speak all for all black people. But it was this notion that they want to support a Democrat for the nomination, not someone who's an insurgent like Bernie Sanders, who comes in, tries to, uh, you know, make things better, but then they're not there the next day. They wanted somebody who's been the Democratic Party, the party who is seen as helping them. And Joe Biden's been a Democrat for 40 plus years and he is a steady candidate, at least in that respect. His, and then there's also, I believe that the electorate of South Carolina, at least the Democratic electorate, may be a little bit more moderate than the uh, supporters in the first two states. I mean, there's also the chance that well, in Iowa with a caucus, with caucuses, those tend to skew toward the people who participate in them tend to be uh, the more active, the more politically engaged and also younger because it can take hours and hours to go and caucus and old people want to go to bed at a reasonable time. I mean, that's just that's more of a joke, but. The, the <laughs> full synthesis of it is true, is that the more politically engaged people tend to vote in these caucuses. So in the Iowa caucus, there was that. Then in New Hampshire, the, you know, Sanders won, but he, he didn't win a majority. He just won a bare plurality. Um, he won, I think... You know what? I think it was like 25% of the vote. It wasn't a, a smashing success. 
And then so when we head into and then Nevada, Nevada happened. And then so when we get into South Carolina, there is this kind of question, you know, Pete Buttigieg, he had his issues with uh, black voters. Amy Klobuchar did not seem to attract any sort of black voters. So in the moderate concert in the in the more moderate lane of the Democratic Party, the only person that was really seen as viable was Joe Biden. And so he won big in South Carolina and through that big win in South Carolina, it seemed to at least in some way signal to the rest of the democratic electorate who wasn't firmly behind Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren that Biden was the candidate for, I mean, if you want to say the establishment, you want to say the moderate lane what have you, but it signaled to the rest of the electorate that Biden was the candidate for that group and he was able to way over, well, yeah, he, he way overperformed what he was projected to do on Super Tuesday. I think someone's saying this was like a 90 or 95th percentile performance for Joe Biden. So... So there's one more name that I want to throw out there as uh, an extremely influential player in the trajectory of this race, and that's a man named Jim Clyburn. Jim Clyburn is a representative. He's the House Majority Whip, and he is uh, coming out of South Carolina, and he is very popular in South Carolina, very respected. Voters listen to him, and the day before the election, He endorsed Joe Biden, and that gave Joe Biden about a 10-point polling boost. So I think that due to all the reasons Joe mentioned, Joe Biden definitely would have won South Carolina either way. But I think perhaps the margin of victory was influenced by the Clyburn endorsement. I think that that can't be overlooked. Yeah. I mean, so... This lat, I mean, or two podcasts ago, we were kind of sounding the death knell of Joe Biden because he really underperformed in in Iowa and New Hampshire. And then in South Carolina, he was always the favorite to win South Carolina, but he even overperformed his what was expected of him in that contest, showing that people were willing to vote for him and that seems to be for the rest of the electorate good enough so he and then also you know it's an interesting dimension where you know uh jim clyburn rep representative clyburn not or endorsed uh biden because you know and partly because of party politics there can be some sort of effect to that there can because if it 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 seems like and i'm not exactly sure but i don't know if endorsements or an endorsement like that would mean as much to the bernie camp because they're running as an insurgent against the party a revolution and not too many or it may be the chicken or the egg you know maybe not too many democrats want to endorse an insurgent who says their party is wrong or 
uh, people wouldn't believe put too much stock into endorsements because they don't believe in the party. With a notable exception, you know, back when uh, Bernie had his heart attack and his campaign was looking on the ropes, he got the endorsement of three quarters of, quote, the squad. And that really came out and helped his numbers. So. Who didn't endorse him? Ayanna Presley. Hmm. So she she endorsed Warren, uh, Elizabeth I Warren. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it is at a ton pretty tough looking place for Bernie right now, where there I mean it's a very narrow path that he has to victory, but it would require another significant swing in the electorate that may not happen. So going back to endorsements, how much stock do you put into the value of sort of this giant collapsing of endorsements around Joe Biden, particularly uh, Amy Klobuchar and then Biden winning Minnesota and Beto O'Rourke and then Biden winning Texas? Do you think that these were really direct, important endorsements or do you see those states results as more of a function of this broader trend of coalescing around Biden. I mean, it could be both. I'm not, you see, it it seems like the kind of idea of, or the consensus on how much endorsements matter is kind of up in the air because sometimes they don't and sometimes they do. And this could have been a an area where they do. I mean, I think in the Minnesota case where Joe Biden won, he had been trailing pretty far against Amy Klobuchar. I think that could have been very decisive because Amy Klobuchar had been leading in the Minnesota race until... Although Bernie was closing in. Yeah, he was closing in, but then Biden came in and swept it. Uh, he had a very strong performance. So there is, I mean, I think at least with the Minnesota example, I believe that I didn't even realize that Beto endorsed him until like after Super Tuesday because the headlines were so focused on Pete and Amy. And then it was like, oh, and then also Beto. It's like, oh man, I forgot about him. We're bringing characters back from last season. So, so yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, Beto, he's got kind of, you know, people like him, but I don't know how influential he really is. I think if, uh, dropout candidates really swung that Texas electorate, wouldn't Warren have done better with Julio Castro, Julian Castro on her side? Yeah, could have. And and then again, it it really depends, (laughs) like who... You know, it's kind of one of those, like I said before, it's it. sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. Um, Beto had a, you know, he didn't seem to gain any traction in the presidential primary. And then I'm not exactly sure how Texans truly feel about him. I mean, he almost won his race against Ted Cruz and he turned out a whole bunch of people who normally wouldn't come out. But then again, he lost, so I don't know how much sway he has with that electorate. I mean, there has been some way 
that in this post Super Tuesday way or time where it seems like people have been supposing that like these people who aren't the candidates have very direct like force the voters to vote a certain way like that somehow Amy Klobuchar forced the people of Minnesota <laughs> to go into <laughs> Biden and that if Elizabeth Warren had dropped out of the race that she could have forced her voters to vote for Bernie. And it just seems unlikely to me, you know, people are voters, they're complex. And we also know that while partisanship may be high, the ideological consistency between, you know, within people in their candidate choices aren't always clear. So yeah, people aren't, people aren't policy wonks, you know, they don't necessarily see Bernie as the next closest alternative to Elizabeth Warren. But my question is, because Elizabeth Warren still has not endorsed either candidate at this point, and while I think it's fair to question on her supporter level who they would move to support, I definitely find it suspect that she hasn't endorsed the candidate who is clearly more ideologically aligned with her agenda and that is i can't really i can't really square that very easily well because there's been a long time where the the sanders camp has been openly hostile no her. they haven't not a Bernie, small a ro- not Bernie, rogue faction his campaign staff who on Not- the staff Oh, do 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 do. Bernie Stanley goes after Warren. Yeah, maybe I don't have, but this is what I've heard. But there, but again, so this is something that I'm pretty sure was going to come up at some point is this whole being mean online thing. And there there is a group of people that, and it seems like, Evan, you're a part of it, that Warren should just automatically endorse Bernie because their policy goals are closer to each other. I don't necessarily think it's automatic, but I guess I just don't understand how, if she believes so strongly in things like student debt forgiveness and a wealth tax, what's the calculus for her? Well, I believe... In what way does a Biden presidency represent that vision better than a Bernie presidency? I don't think she owes him the endorsement, but it's just, to me, it's like, why, why wouldn't she want that? So what I... Part of my thinking is that, so in this part, in this post super tuesday state it's looking pretty sure that biden is going to be the nominee and elizabeth warren unlike bernie sanders is a democrat she is a democrat further to the left than most people who are democrats but she is still a member of the party nonetheless so if the whole of the party came out to basically endorse joe biden as its nominee And then she comes in and 
endorses the insurgent, the guy who's an independent, a guy who's not even a member of the party to be president, then that could spell ill will for her within the party establishment. Her ability to get seats on committees, her ability to uh, be able to uh, withstand primary challenges from other people. This could affect her, you know, if she came out and endorsed Bernie, that could have real consequences for her ability to continue to be an effective senator within the Democratic Party. And then I'm also thinking that the way I'm looking at Joe Biden is that his campaign isn't super plan heavy. He doesn't have a whole lot of policy goals he more kind of traffics in the kind of feeling of let's go back to normal. Let's bring some decency back to the office. Let's do this or that. And what I see in that a bit is kind of what Trump did with the Republican Party. He came into office and he, you know, you know, Trump said he had all these goals, but it turns out he was just kind of saying whatever he needed to say to get in. And then as soon as he came in, he had no interest in actually governing or pushing what his supposed agenda was. And he just did whatever the Republican Party wanted him to do. He became a rubber stamp for basically anything that they wanted. For so, Stephen Miller. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way, I see a a Biden presidency at this point, not so much where Biden is taking the full reins of legislating, really taking it into his hands and providing a super clear vision. What I see is him taking his party, trying to suss out what their goals are, and then trying to possibly make a deal to make some of those goals happen. Where maybe he's able to, now this is a big asterisk, maybe, maybe he's able to take those goals and or uh, and go work with Republicans and suss something out. But, you know, there's a very good case that that's not going to happen. But if we see, you know, if we look at what happened with, uh, you know, with this uh, endorsement deal, for whatever reason, however it was able to work, Joe Biden was able to get Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke, all people who have been very critical of Biden, that to fall in behind him, to endorse him, support him, and drop out of the race when it was crucially important for him. Bernie, on the other hand, it just, if, you know, Elizabeth Warren would make a lot of sense to endorse him, but for whatever reason, that kind of deal-making, that transactional nature, that whatever communication between the two parties hasn't happened. So... With a Joe Biden presidency at this point, I don't see it as him going off on some weird tangent where he gives the Republicans everything he wants and and, uh, you know, we live in a worse world. I see it as a place where the thought leaders of the Democratic Party can come together and if they can put a coalition together within Congress, 
then Joe Biden wouldn't be standing in the way of whatever they do. But who is that coalition and who are those thought leaders? I don't think it's Bernie Sanders. I don't think it's anyone with a legitimate vision to push the country in a radically new direction. You know, if if all that he's got is going back to Obama, Obama presided over widening inequality and it you know to the extent that we like obama i think he did a decent job with the hand he was dealt it's not i think it's tough to say that his presidency changed the trajectory of the country for good so i i guess two assumptions that i'd like to say that i maybe don't agree with first assumption is that i don't think that this race is set in stone yet i think that there's enough time and the delegate lead is not insurmountable enough, even with the proportional rewards that Bernie couldn't, with some significant intervention, launch a successful swing back into contention. And I don't think that a Joe Biden presidency is kind of this neutral good option. Would it be better than Trump? Yes. Okay. I just want to make sure. <laughs> yes. If, if it came to it, I mean, you know, there's another big debate is going on is do you vote blue no matter who? And I don't think that that's a really productive conversation to have during the primaries because the primaries are about figuring out who that who is. But no, I would <laughs> I don't think it's at all equivalent. A Biden presidency is not equivalent to a Trump presidency. Not at all. Okay. Well, one thing I wanted to say on that, like, you know, oh, we're going to vote Democrat no matter what. And then, of course, there's some Joe Biden surrogate who says they won't vote for Bernie. And then there's, you know, Bernie supporters or surrogates who say they won't vote for Joe Biden. And this comes to the kind of nature of the Democratic Party as a whole, where the Democratic Party is way more coalitional than the Republican Party. There is a uh, it's bringing together a bunch of or at least trying to bring together a bunch of groups who normally wouldn't be together under some other party, uh, you know, structure under into one party. You know, I think it was uh, AOC who once said that, you know, if this was like a different country, Joe Biden and her wouldn't be in the same party together. Yeah. And but that speaks. But that's just how American politics is. You know, there are multiple factions within these parties. So one thing that is, you know, there with the the kind of choice between bernie and biden is that so with like bernie he sac you know if he's the nominee there's a big sacrifice of the most moderate democrats and some independents in there but where he picks up is in the youth vote and the lefter side of the party but then with a biden presidency or a biden candidacy his coalition is looking to be picking up those more, the most moderate uh, Democrats and some independents while losing the youth vote 
and losing the furthest left of the party. And it seems to be that with the the way the United States politics runs, you know, it's not the reaching for the median voter isn't quite how it works. It's because of the electoral college, you have to meet with meet to the median median voter. So if you took all the median voters from all the states and lined them up, then you got to then took the median of that. That voter is, um, I think I saw somewhere, is about six points more conservative than the median voter in general. I think that's from uh, Why We're Polarized. I believe I recall that. Yeah. Yeah. So this means that, in a way, (laughs) the Democratic Party has to play more conservative than a Republican Party has to play has to give any credence to liberal causes. Um, And then, you know, we get into the kind of down ballot stuff. So, you know, in a Sanders uh, candidacy are the, are more moderate Democrats in states that are purple. Are they going to be able to, uh, are, are the Senate candidates going to be able to win under the cover of a more liberal Sanders presidency? Or are they be, going to be able to win into power under a more moderate Joe Biden presidency because people aren't as scared of some crazy socialist takeover of whatever? I mean, I'm not saying that's what would happen under a, on a, under a Bernie presidency, but that's what people fear will happen. So is it is it what people fear or is it what yes. we're told to fear? I really I these I, I think that, by and large, I haven't heard a really persuasive electability argument in any direction. People are electable if you vote for them. And so I think that that, that kind of stuff has been used by establishment candidates to talk people out of voting for more um, ideologically fervent candidates for no other reason than that it's kind of tautological well you can't you can't vote for them because people are afraid and they're afraid because they're not electable and you know they're not electable because no one will vote for them and so it just i mean is is there do do you have some do you have some like you know any sort of you know either polling data or have you talked to anyone who's actually uh, saying like oh yeah you know uh, if Bernie's the nominee, I'm not going to vote for Cory Gardner. Like, what? Where Where is this coming from? Where's the genesis of this? Well, you know, I talk with, um, you know, some of the people that I work with, and there are definitely people who, you know, th- I mean, they're not even people who would ever be swayed into the Democratic Party to begin with, but they, you know, they go on about how, uh, you know, how they see. Bernie Sanders is just, you know, doing all these giveaways and just how he's, you know, a, a communist or a socialist or what have you, blah, 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 blah. But those are, you know, the Republicans have used that as an attack before. So, but what can Biden, would, would Biden bring those guys over? No, I mean, not those specific ones that I talked to, but. So who cares what they think? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm saying people. <laughs> I mean, 
we we have this idea when we talk about the electorate of you know through polarization we talk through about a divided electorate but most people when they talk about elections or you know talking with people they talk to people so republican messaging on that can also have sway with less informed democratic and voters or democrat democratic voters so there is a messaging thing there. And then also with um, with Biden's win, it seems like he has done really well with the white working class voters this time around, which, you know, seems to be a crucial vote in the vote in the states that are a little bit more swingy than uh, than the more stable states. So that could be, you know, that could be decisive. And then also I read this uh, article on Vox where they did a study, an actual academic study where, you know, if you look at the matchup data between Biden and Bernie, you know, they look like they perform about the same against Trump. But baked into that through the survey data, they were able to find that getting that to that assumption was based on this idea that there will be a huge voter turnout by young people for Bernie, an 11 point turnout boost relative to the rest of the population. That would be bigger to the turnout boost that Barack Obama did with or got with the black population in his election. And as we saw in Super Tuesday, you know, maybe this was because they, you know, they thought a Bernie Sanders presidency was a sure thing. But on Super Tuesday, the youth vote was not there. Yeah, but I that, that really kind of only tells part of the story. I think that what we're learning is that uh, polling place closure has affected areas with likely large groups of youth turnout more. A friend of mine on the UCLA campus had to wait in line for hours and hours because on a campus of 40,000 students, there was one polling location. I, I'm not going to claim that that is responsible for the entirety of the lack of turnout because I, I haven't seen any hard data and I don't think it would be fair. But I, I, I think that we don't know enough yet about what kind of turnout Bernie Sanders can bring. I don't think that looking at Super Tuesday and saying, well, it's not going to happen. That that doesn't seem like we have enough data points to make that claim yet. Well, I mean, he I mean, the whole pre, the whole premise of Bernie Sanders electability argument. I mean, I know you trashed on electability, but I mean, ability to get enough voters, let's put it that way. The whole premise of his ability to get enough voters to win the presidency is that he is going to turn up a whole host of people who have never voted for segments of the population who don't vote aren't counted in any sort of voting roles and all that such to come out and vote for him and what we see seen so far in all of the contests, not even just Super Tuesday. I mean, it's maybe with a 
the exception of the Nevada primary where he did very well with Latino voters, that at least in this primary so far, he hasn't been turning out the political revolution numbers. Now, that but could I think be what different on the primary. Is, okay. What's yeah, my, claim? my claim is is that I don't think we have enough evidence to say that he can't still have that those turnout numbers that he needs. I, I think that there is there are other factors at play, like soft voter suppression, that could be responsible for the turnout numbers, and it's not a failing of Sanders as a candidate. It might be, but I'm I'm just I, I don't think that 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 take is supported by anything other than circumstantial evidence. At least not at this stage in but the I campaign. But I mean, like with those soft voter suppression things, like I, I, yeah, I fully agree that having to wait hours and hours to vote, that sucks. That shouldn't happen. In an advanced democracy, that shouldn't happen. But then also, that's going to be the same conditions that the the general election happens under. And could it be disfavorable to Bernie Sanders? Yeah, it sure could be. But then also, this is the game that we're playing now. Like, the these are the rules that are going to be at the general election as well. There isn't going to be a, at least in my, you know, what it seems to be to me is that there's not, there isn't going to be a big coming to Jesus moment where everyone decides, oh yeah, now we need to make voting way more accessible for everybody. Um, it's, this is, this is the playing field. These are the rules of the game right now. And so far in this set of rule of game rules of the game, it hasn't happened. You could very well be right. I just, I think it's a little defeatist to claim that at this juncture. Well, I mean, I, I really think this next round, this Tuesday, this Tuesday, March 10th, uh, the day after this podcast comes out, will be the real test of that. This will be the make or break it in in some sense of the word or in some sense of the race. Because if it turns out that the Bernie Sanders supporters through this, uh, through this, uh, you know, not loss, but bad showing on uh, Super Tuesday, if they see that as big enough a threat and are able to turn out for the remaining states, then that's, you know, that's the chance that you have to make it happen. But if it continues to be that voters don't turn out, the revolution doesn't come, the the youth vote doesn't come out, then there it doesn't look like there is a coalition for Bernie to put together to win the presidency or the primary. Well, I agree with that in the future tense. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's also great that we're putting this podcast out like the day before the next real um, (laughs) next real thing. So everybody will be up to date on the past. But um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a tough road looking for look tough road for Bernie Sanders right now. He's going to have to overperform 
more than Joe Biden has already overperformed. Um, in this, yeah, because he's got to catch up. Yep, he's got to catch up. So it can happen. It's just unlikely at this point. Now that doesn't. Now this is like the statistics part of it. It's like even though you know the model says you know the five thirty eight model says you know there's a ninety percent chance that Joe Biden has this. That's not a hundred percent. Um. So there is a one in ten chance where Bernie can still pull this out. So if that happens, great. If it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't happen. So, um, let me see. Is there anything else? Do, do, do. Oh, there's infinite other things, but it just matters where we want to go with it. Oh, we can go anywhere. What's what's on your uh, what's on your mind, Evan? Okay. So with the rise of Biden, do you think that it is primarily motivated by a sense of safety, the idea that he is a surefire or a more surefire bet to beat Trump? Or do you think that people are are genuinely enthused by Joe Biden as a candidate? I don't think the enthusiasm for Biden happens in a vacuum. But when people decide or, you know, it seems to have decided or are deciding that he is the candidate, then then they're throwing their support and enthusiasm around him. It, it, it almost seems like where in the Hillary Clinton camp of, you know, of 20 or in the Hillary Clinton world of 2016, there was... Uh, no, that's not where I want to go with this. So, yeah, I, it may just be indifference, but um, enough people are throwing their support around him because he seems to be the clear front runner in the moderate lane. Do I wish he was the front runner in the moderate lane? No, but uh, here we are. And this is what it is. And it does seem like you know, you'll see online that there's some picture, you know, sometimes you'll have a picture of a Biden rally and it'll be like, oh, there's a few people there or there can be some of them where there's a whole bunch of people to who turn out. So I, I don't know if I'm in the position to gauge the uh, the ravenousness of the support for Biden. OK, adequately informed listeners, this is your homework assignment. Who do you support at this point and why? Who are you excited for? Are you excited for Biden? Are you just hopeful that Biden has the best shot to beat Trump? Do you like Bernie? Are you still holding on to Elizabeth Warren or any of the other candidates? Please email us and let us know. I, I, I kind of want to see what kind of feedback we get on this. I, I hope that I hope that we'll get some takers on this because... Yeah. Um, it's something that I don't have a very clear view of right now, but it does lead me into another question. If if a moderate was well positioned to beat Donald Trump, why didn't Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump? Because I don't know if she was a moderate. Um, maybe a moderate in the economic issues that uh, Bernie Sanders were was espousing, but... Notably, in the 2016 election, she had to play very much to the kind of 
I mean, I hate to use the terminology, but it's what we have, the kind of woke politics ring. She had to take a very progressive, very whatever left take on issues having to deal with race and um, immigration and similar issues that ended up becoming a real talking point or a real pivotal issue in that election. Any more so than Biden has now? I feel like uh, the social issues, the Democrats are all universally pretty left, and it is that economic line that divides them in terms of uh, centrist or farther left. I so mean, it does seem how, how is like it different from what Biden's doing? It does seem like there is some version where, well, one, we know how Biden talks, and he doesn't talk too decisively on anything. True. So... It's, you know, even if he does talk about those issues or because of belonging to the greater Democratic Party is belonging to those issues, he's not bringing them up in such a pointed way that um, inflames people's loathing of that. Like he's doing very well with the white working class, which is kind of the demographic that Hillary Clinton struggled with the most um, in the 2016 election. So there may be some, you know, this may be the reverse side of sexism where maybe Joe Biden gets a pass for it because it's just kind of expected. Oh, he's an old white guy. I can kind of trust in him and see in him what I want to see in him. Whereas Hillary Clinton by both being a better orator and better able to explain what her, you know, what the positions were and by being a, uh, you know, a, a woman may have swayed how people felt on those issues greater than a Joe Biden would. And so you know, it sounds like what you're saying is that a moderate should have beaten Donald Trump but sexism kicked in and took a non-zero role in that election. That's that, I mean, that it, sounds all right to me. That and I mean, I, there was also it, the baggage Hillary Clinton had. Well, I mean, I mean, we could talk about Joe Biden baggage too. Um, yeah, but it, but it, it just seems like a different baggage. I mean, well, because it is a different, different person. But um, well, and then also the reason. <laughs> I mean, we get into this weird space where Hillary Clinton clearly had a, a, you know, in some version of the word, a winning message because she got three more million more votes than Trump. But then we're also knowing back to what we were saying, you know, about like with polling places and, you know, this is the system that That's we the have. Game. Yeah. This is the game that we're playing. You know, so Hillary Clinton played, you know, in some ways, back to what I was saying, maybe Hillary Clinton was playing to the median voter and Joe Biden plays to the median median voter. I don't know. I don't know if that that's not as satisfying an answer to me because I see them as so similar. But I am willing to accept that Hillary probably got nailed for things because she's a woman that joe biden won't be for that that to me seems to ring more true well and then there was also hillary clinton seemed more 
antagonistic towards Trump supporters or potential Trump supporters in a way that I don't see Joe Biden being. He's very antagonistic towards Trump, the person. But he, do- he doesn't have the deplorable the, sound yeah, bite. He I doesn't have yeah. the deplorable sound bite. And he, he is able, you know, as a man born, raised, and lived fully in the East Coast, he almost gets to, a- he's almost able to pull off like some Midwest charm about him where, you know, he's the middle class, he's middle class Joe that, that people perceive him as not at, you know, where Hillary Clinton was seen as high society, you know, doing speeches at Goldman Sachs. I don't even, you know, Joe Biden could have done a speech at Goldman Sachs, but it doesn't like, it doesn't seem to be speaking to his character in the same way it did for Hillary Clinton. Where well, it, seemed, it does to me, but your broader does, point is accepted. <laughs> yeah. Like, if he does not have the perception that he is from the high high uh, society, he, it is not seen that he is, I, you know, I never read the book, but just even the title, A Limousine Liberal. You know, he does what not... What book see, is that? It's just called Limousine Liberal. Is it famous? I've never heard of this. I don't know. It's in my uh, it's in my Amazon wish list and it's been there for a while. <laughs> you know, it seems to be a I mean, if I were to synthesize just from the title and like maybe the back page is that it seems like there's a cohort of liberal politicians out there who tend to while speaking for the poor tend to indulge in the more extravagant parts of life and use that as a, an excuse to become part of an aristocracy. But Joe Biden doesn't run up against that perception of him. Or, yeah, that perception, that, that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it just seemed, and, and yeah, Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes than Trump. But then again, we're playing the game where in the Electoral College, it awards votes to land and not to people. So whoever can grab the most votes for the most land or, you know, the higher, uh, yeah, if you, you know, if higher you play power the to vote. So that you win the, yeah, you win the powerful votes instead of the most votes. Yeah. I mean, that's what Trump did. And it looks like, at least in what I see, in a Bernie versus Biden setup, it may be better for Biden. At least um, hit the way he's going to be able to play the game. Because, hell, you know, if it gets to a contested convention and Bernie um, ends up being the nominee, there's a fair chance that a number of moderate Dems just sit out just say, no, I'm not part of this. Well, yeah, but again, I think that any candidate runs the risk of having the people on their ideologically opposed, excuse me, I think any candidate runs the risk of having the voters on their ideologically opposing side stay home, and I don't think we have any way to quantify whether that risk is more acute for either of the two candidates. The electability arguments that really there's there's one specifically that is really motivating to me 
And that comes in terms of, I think, that Bernie would struggle to win Pennsylvania because this came up on the New York Times podcast a couple weeks ago. There is one wedge issue there that is really going to hinder him, and that's fracking. Although I agree with him that fracking is environmentally harmful, it's such a big industry in Pennsylvania that when they interviewed union leaders, they've said, and these are people who would be considered moderate swing voters, that have said that they could not accept a candidate who proposes an all-out ban on fracking. So that's a very specific case issue where I could see Bernie having trouble in a specific locality. But again, in terms of broader conclusions about who would stay home in greater numbers to oppose who, I, I don't think we have that data even anecdotally. Yeah. So it it's a, it's going to be a tough one going into it. And I you know regardless of which direction this kind of goes, you know, it's funny that we have the polarized democratic uh, primary, like there's the polar, you know, we polarize the democratic primary somehow. Whereas, you know, the, the country is polarized, you know, supposedly between, you know, the Democrats and Republicans. And then, you know, somehow everyone, you know, use those same tools to, in a way, seemingly polarize the Democratic primary. Yeah. And I think part of that observation, which I think is dead on, is that uh, goes back to what you said earlier regarding AOC, that in a two party system, she wouldn't be forced. We, we wouldn't have these very different ideological end games within the same party. And so when there is that fracture, there exists the potential for polarization, which is what we've seen throughout this primary. Yeah. I mean, so in kind of, you know, a governing or coalit, you know, sit governing sense, you know, a big tent party such as the Democrats you know, it can be beneficial. It can help bring people to the table who haven't been there before or, you know, use the party structure to give credence to things that otherwise wouldn't have too much of a voice because, you know, they aren't popular enough to ha win on their own party structure. But then when it comes to time to decide, you know, who's going to run that, <laughs> it, uh, it gets very feisty. Because a lot yeah. of people want a lot of different things. Like, yeah, you know, when you when represent I, a bunch of interests, you still have to decide whose interests get the most represented. And that gets contentious. I mean, yeah, that's that's how coalitions work. And it just seems like right now, Biden has been building a more durable coalition than what Bernie has. Bernie almost is non-coalitional he has his uh more like a, a more homogenous group of people following him and supporting him fervently than uh what uh biden is or biden has as his support so yeah i guess those are my thoughts on this do you have and, any other uh do you have any other thing you want to bring up? Nothing that? that's burning a hole in my pocket. I mean, you know, we could 
can play verbal tennis all day. There's, you know, kind of infinite content right now regarding this topic. Yeah. So does this, uh, this bring us to an end segment? I believe it does. Let's, uh, let's bring up the energy for coronavirus. Yes, but not what you're thinking. Joe and I realize that we are not epidemiologists. We are not public health officials, and we are not adequately informed on yeah, we the just actual had this science of the coronavirus. We just had this realization right do. now. We thought we were, but um, <laughs> we, we dug into yeah. our hearts just a little bit. <laughs> Something that... <laughs> we got down off yeah. that ivory tower and realized but, um, something we do understand though is polarization and what we think we've determined is that polarization is deeply affecting people's response to the coronavirus and again it's kind of counterintuitive you wouldn't think that what is going on scientifically with a viral outbreak would be sorted across party lines, and yet it is. What we've seen is that the coronavirus and fears around the coronavirus could be potentially damaging to the economy, which weakens Trump's claims to being an effective leader, which are almost entirely predicated on a strong economy. And so what you've seen is that Trump has tried everything in his power to downplay the severity of the coronavirus, even resorting to misinformation and lies about the way that viruses spread and are contained, and has apparently actively tried to slow down testing. So the other conservatives in the media and politics have run to that poll and are playing the coronavirus off like it's a very small minor thing that really doesn't matter meanwhile it seems like the democratic members of the media and political establishments have run to the other end of the poll they won't shut up about the coronavirus and i believe they're giving it a disproportionate amount of media coverage chris hayes who is a thinker and commentator who i deeply respect has basically turned his entire life's work in these past couple of weeks into talking about the coronavirus, which is crazy given yeah. all of the other stuff that's going on. We had John Oliver, who I think his piece on the coronavirus did end up reaching a, a very sensible, moderate ground, but still he devoted an entire episode to something extremely topical like that, which he normally never does. And so what we have here is the objective facts about the coronavirus it is spreading and there appear to be inadequate ways to contain it but the individual risk is still low however you've got conservatives who have polarized to say that it's not a problem it's already going away which is not true and you've got liberal media creating a frenzy about it which i also think is a bit extreme so polarization, it really, you can find it in almost any news topic that comes up. Because Ezra Klein didn't foresee this when he wrote his book, but it seems to have very accurately predicted yeah. what the response to coronavirus has I also wonder if on that, you know, media giving it way too much attention thing. You know, one thing that, now, the, this is going to be me going into, you know, not the most popular territory, but... 
So whenever Fox News covers something that, you know, I, I, I normally assume that it's in bad faith that they're trying to reach some political end and they go all out to <laughs> cover some stupid thing or some small thing that, you know, liberals don't see as consequential at all. Like, hell, last night I rewatched in, uh, you know, a time John Stewart went on to Bill O'Reilly's store or show because there was an incident where the rapper common went to the white house and it was controversial because according because bill bill o'reilly thought it was controversial because common sympathized with a cop killer and that somebody of that caliber shouldn't be invited to the white house and you know, I don't think that has any merit to it. And, you know, I understand that we often attribute these or more readily attribute these bad things to people of color, which is a, a point John Stewart was trying to make. But it's like, well, if you if you think something's a big deal and nobody else is making a big deal out of it, you're going to make a super big deal to kind of equilibrial lies it like so if trump is having a you yeah. know if we're gonna you know if we were to put it like a negative net response to coronavirus then to reach like kind of societal equilibrium chris hayes has to <laughs> devote every waking moment to it but um that ends up just being seen as hysteria in, you know, kind of both examples where it's like, Oh, common isn't, it, it's not a big deal that he came to the white house. And then Republicans are like, Oh, well, coronavirus, huh? they're just be, they're just making hysteria. They're just trying to get the people afraid to vote for their people. So if, yeah, isn't it interesting? Um, and I don't, I don't have a, a normative claim here about what's right and wrong, but you know, Trump is always criticized for stoking panic and fear and hatred. And now, when he now now he's gone the opposite way, and he's and being all, criticized for playing it too cool. And, and you know, it's not also making a big enough that, deal out you know, of it. He's a historic germaphobe, and he's like, yeah, these germs, they ain't bad. They ain't going to kill you. What? You can die <laughs> from the flu? No. I've. <laughs> yeah. And his grandfather um, died from the flu. And uh, something else I saw interesting that maybe is a little bit more inside baseball, but I'll throw it out here. You can you can add it as a PS in your email, your commentary on this, uh, listeners. Um, but basically the idea that... Uh, Virus viral fears hurt hotel owners because people travel less, and so there's speculation that Trump is acting as a hotel owner <laughs> in his response to coronavirus. Which I, I don't know if it's true, oh, but man, I can see bring, it. I, I can mean, I can see it. It seems like everything Trump does is to in some way promote his own self interest. Other. Uh, you know, except when he gives yeah. his compared to the rest of his wealth, meager presidential salary to whatever department. But people like to use that as that he's not selfish, but he probably reaps war way more good. 
good faith benefits from that than the actual dollar amount. But, you know, whatever. That could me just be also polarized. Yeah, yeah that's a tough argument so, to make to people, though. No, I agree with we're, you, but we're all, shit, I, I'm polarized, too. Pol- so. <laughs> Why we're polarized. The second episode. So that... <laughs> So may, maybe this will be a reoccurring segment of looking at some issue and how it is seen through the lens of polarization. It just really struck me because before reading that book, I, I don't think I would have had the tools to say, hey, why is it that half of the people are making a really big deal out of this and the other half are ignoring it? And it's yep. for all the reasons that so Ezra Klein talked about. still definitely highly recommend that book. Why we're polarized by Ezra Klein. Absolutely. So, Evan, is that is that all your thoughts? Uh, that's the gist of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really hopeful that um you will email us and let us know your thoughts about the candidates because I'm genuinely interested. And if you've liked what you've heard today, you can follow us on Twitter. We have an adequately informed Twitter account, but then we also have personal accounts that. Get a little bit more action. So mine's at, at Evan V. Kelly. <laughs> have fun spelling that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we have those. Uh, please share the podcast with uh, anyone you think who would enjoy listening to it. Um, if you have any ideas for, you know, we have a lot of material going on now, but if you have any ideas for topics that you would like us to explore, you think we may be adequately informed on, uh, let us know because... I'd like to think I'd like to think that we have proven that we take viewer suggestions seriously. My topic today yeah. came from a listener, so Man. we are serious, we're, we're guys. A pretty small group, guys. We'll 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 listen to you. <laughs> well, anyway, we haven't forgotten our roots yet. Yeah, yeah, we're still in the roots. So anyway, we'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music, and as always, my name's Joe Hicks, and mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.